0: You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, Genesis chapter 6, as we were discussing earlier today, um, this is a highly controversial passage just because of how unclear some portions of it are. Um, It's the segue into a very familiar and very common story that, that most of us grew up hearing the story of Noah and the flood and the ark that he builds. And so... Uh, we enter into chapter 6 with the mindset that we're going to be discussing a lot of, of, of the story of Noah over the coming weeks. Um, we're going to see portions of it verse by verse. We're going to see portions of it thematically because there's a lot of correlation to how the story of Noah plays out in regards to how we understand the gospel. Um, and so a lot of foreshadowing in this story that we're going to see that points to Christ and, and our understanding of faith and salvation. Uh, but as we enter into Genesis chapter 6, I think it's, it's, it's important for us as we enter this passage, but also uh, the overall story, uh, that we understand that the overall goal of this section of Scripture is for man to reflect on the grace of God, not for man to strive to be like Noah. So it would be very easy for us to, to make this passage all about Noah and all about what Noah did and try to pull characteristics from Noah that we should apply to our life, pull leadership principles uh, that Noah demonstrates to apply to our life and while there there are things that we may highlight about Noah and his response, overall God reveals things about himself through his word and so as we study this passage it's ultimately not about Noah, it's about God revealing his grace, how his grace works. You remember this is uh, the early accounts of redemptive history. And so God reveals his grace very early. It's, it helps us to understand the grace that we cling to today. Also, as we as we enter once again into this passage, we understand that sin leads to destruction and death. We've seen this ever since we left the garden. Uh, that destruction and death have followed Adam and Eve's decisions. Um, but just as God promised... Uh, we see that sin ultimately leads to death. And this is another passage where we continue to highlight that God is shown to be true. Satan is shown to be a liar, um, that what he says will happen doesn't happen. What God says will happen always happens. And so while we know those truths, it's so important that we connect those truths to our daily life as we face temptation this week. Uh, Ultimately, it's a temptation as to whether we believe that God is true or Satan is true. Are the promises that Satan extends to us through sin valid promises? Or has God promised us good in a way that we believe it? And that's ultimately the temptation that we're faced with throughout our week. And this is another section of Scripture to reinforce what we already know up here, that God is true, Satan is a liar. We also see in this section of Scripture today why the flood was necessary. Uh, The global flood that destroys all of life except for that life contained in the ark um, is a devastating story. Um, It's a kid's story a lot of times, and and so we lose some of the the devastation in telling our kids this story. But to sit back and reflect and to think about the population expansion that we've already highlighted here in Genesis, to, to think about the amount of people that were on the earth, we're not talking about... A couple of aunts and uncles for Noah that didn't listen to him and get into the ark. Uh, that, that, that globally, there were potentially millions, potentially billions of people in existence at that time based on the life, uh, life expectancy of men and women and the reproduction that they were, that they were having within their own families. Um, and so this is a devastating event. This is a devastating event. Uh, hell claims a lot of souls in regards to what happens here. Um, there are many that are lost for eternity uh, because they believe Satan over God. They believe the, the promises of the flesh and the promises of sin over God's promises. Um, and it grieves God, and, and God is sorrowful over what happens here, and we're going to see that in this passage. And then here at the beginning, what we ultimately find is that uh, Satan uses something that was, that was given to man as a good thing, uses sex, part of God's good creation, as a means of sinful rebellion. With tragic consequences. What we see here in Genesis chapter 6. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. This is uh, a description of of men and women uh, coming together to be married. Um, We also know from scripture that this isn't... uh, This isn't something that that should be missed because what we find when Jesus talks about this time, Matthew 24, verse 37. That this was a important aspect of their life. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. This understanding of sex and marriage was something that characterized their life. We're going to see that the way that it was being used and, and utilized was a an act of sinful rebellion against God. And it leads to these tragic consequences. So sin is mounting. This isn't the only sin that leads to the flood. But we're going to see that as sin continues to mount, that it comes to a head here with, with what's described here. Uh, what's described in these events is ultimately what leads to kind of that, that last straw, that definitive act that God says, okay, now's the time. Now's the time where judgment has to happen upon the earth. So we begin this passage of Scripture looking at the moral condition of mankind. As we're examining the flood and why it was needed, it's important for us to look back into history and see the moral condition of mankind. We're going to see both the individual sins of man as well as the global depravity of man. Two different aspects here individual sins that were happening. But it's not to say that everybody was involved in these sins, but thinking more globally, there was rampant wickedness that led to the flood and led to that judgment. First, we begin by looking at the individual sins of man. It says in verse one, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. What we have here at the beginning of this passage is the concept of multiplying, a, a command that God had given to his creation, that they were to be fruitful and to multiply. And we talk back in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 when that command was given That it was given with the concept, the mindset that by multiplying, God's glory would also multiply. That as his children were submitted to him by multiplying and creating more worshipers of God, that his glory would encompass the earth. But because of Adam and Eve's sin, because they produce sinful offspring, what we find is that the opposite is happening. As man multiplies and increases, it's not God's glory that's increasing, but instead Satan's evil. Evil is increasing upon the earth and it's a cause of concern for God as he looks out in all his holiness and examines his creation. He recognizes and identifies that the plan is for his glory to expand. And what we have instead is the opposite being true. The evil is expanding and encompassing the globe to understand better what's happening here. We have to look at the identity of the sons of God and the daughters of man. This is the The key point here at the very beginning of the passage, who are these sons of God that see these daughters of man, find them attractive, and take them as their wives? This is an extremely difficult passage to interpret. There are good people on different sides of the spectrum here as to what exactly is going on. As you were discussing this morning, I challenged you in the the aspect, does it matter who these people are? Ultimately, I hope it doesn't matter because we don't have explicit evidence to know otherwise. I believe it's important. I believe the identity of these people was important for sure because it led to some, some global catastrophe here. But I hope it doesn't matter for us today because, like I said, I don't think we can walk away confident knowing who these people are. But I do think we can walk away gleaning much by examining who these people could be. Um, there are three main ideas that are considered uh, realistic. Um, so you may have come up with some other ones. So if it's not grouped into these three, just know that that I've not come across anybody um, that, that, that is considered knowledgeable on this subject to hold to those views. Um, there are three main views that, that that quality, solid men, solid theologians hold to. And like I said, you've got good men on, in all three of these groups. As you look at it, what I've found is that in examining these three perspectives, these three possible identities for the sons of God and the daughters of man, the three groupings focus on different aspects of what's happening in this passage, and it leads them to their conclusions. So I want to give you the three different focuses that lead to the conclusions of the identities here. The first one, uh, the first group um, of belief about the identity focuses on the way the women are acquired. It really focuses on how these women are acquired so that the sons of God, sons of God acquire these daughters of men. And this view, this perspective focuses heavily on how they acquired them or the ease at which they acquire them. The second grouping focuses on the type of women acquired, the type of women acquired. These daughters of men, they want to distinguish them as a certain type of female. And so it leads them to the conclusion as to the identity of the sons of God. And then this last group, the last belief system, focuses on the offspring of the women acquired. So the first view that we'll look at focuses on the way the women are acquired. Second group focuses on the type of women acquired. And the last group focuses on the offspring of the women acquired. So Let's look at this first grouping, the the way women are acquired. This first view, this first perspective on the identity of the sons of God and the daughters of man would, would hold to the idea that these are evil kings, evil rulers, that take an unlimited amount of common women for their possession. So it takes this concept of the sons of God, being royal individuals, men of authority, men of leadership, that take women and take as many as they choose to be their wives. They're taking common women, so they're not marrying the, the, the princess or the or the prince type of setup. They're they're just taking whoever they choose to come into their um, to come into their uh, their royal um, family. What we do know from Scripture is that sometimes kings are referred to as sons of God. This was a a common understanding in the secular cultures. So in uh, in these early communities, these early establishments, kings would come to power and would claim deity. They would claim to be a descendant of the gods, hoping to increase their sphere of influence and power. We also talked about Lamech, who's the first polygamist that, that's mentioned where he takes two wives, that it was very possible that by taking more wives, you increased your your uh, sphere of influence because you had more wives, more kids that would submit to your leadership. And so many would say that this is a, um, a, a situation where you had men of, of power, men of influence that were claiming women for themselves. Psalm chapter 82 is a passage that, would refer to men of leadership, men of influence in the context of being sons of God. In Psalm 82, it says, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, You are gods, son of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. A comparison of God in, in relationship to others that have judgment power here on this earth. And, and it talks about them dying like men, that these are not actual angelic beings. These are not gods. These are men with authority that are expected to lead with justice and are not. And they are referred to uh, as sons of God. Um, there, there's some suggestion here that perhaps these, these individuals were, were demon-possessed, um, that they were being led not just by their own flesh, but by, by, uh, by some demonic force. Um, but ultimately what we have here is, is men of authority taking whatever they choose, taking whatever they want, to satisfy their needs. Now, in in reading this passage, I don't know that um, that it makes a, a a ton of sense to view it this way. There's there's no indication up to this point of of any type of monarchy system, so we don't have any references to leaders and kings and that type of establishment before the flood. Um, but it's very possible it's very possible that these are these are kings and rulers that are just uh, flippantly taking women to be Uh, be their objects of desire. Um, Again, I don't know that the text really supports it, but I do believe that just stepping back and thinking about that identity has a lot to say about us in our culture today. Um, In in thinking about this, whether this is their identity or not, we we can hopefully all agree that this would be complete injustice for it to be happening this way. Um, And as we're going to see we kind of get more and more serious as we go through these beliefs. So I would at least suggest that this was happening at this time, even if it wasn't what's being talked about here, right? There were men with authority and power that were taking women, however they chose for their own pleasures, right? For the, for the flood to come, for the flood to come, I think we can at least say this was probably happening. If every intent of man was for evil, this was probably happening. Now, we can look back and and start to speculate, okay, were these fallen angels, were these aliens, as some would try to suggest? And we can really disconnect ourselves and make this a sci-fi movie as we try to read this passage. But I think it's so important, especially for our men, to see ourselves in this passage this morning and know that we're not this far away from being these type of individuals. This is all around us in our culture right now, right? Right? It's it's very common now in churches to hear uh, the, the awareness about sex trafficking, right? That's that's what we're describing here. If this is what's happening, we're describing common day sex trafficking where men with power and money and influence claim women for their own desires. And there are people that know there is a market for this. And so they go to all the trouble of putting their life on the lines to obtain women so that they can present them to men of power and influence and money and make the money off of the situation. And we have, so we've we've kind of stayed clear of even talking about this concept. I know it's big in Coweta County. I know there's a lot of churches that are rallying around it. I've feared having us jump on it because it feels so trendy right now to talk about sex trafficking. And I'm just being honest in what I've seen in talking with people that are at churches that are doing this thing. That's not to say that, that the leadership has missed the boat by any means, but the people that I've talked to, the people that have the big X's on their cars for end it, the people that have the big X's on their, their hands that walk around, I've asked them, I'm like, hey, what does that mean? What, what, what is your church doing to end it? And there's very little understanding by the people that are rallying around it. Now, again, the leadership may be completely on base with how to do this. The leadership may be completely invested in funneling their resources at their church to end this. But it's felt very trendy for me and the people that I've talked to, that this is something that we can just jump around and rally around, but maybe not really understand the issue. What we have here are men of power and influence in our culture that are taking women, taking women for their pleasure. Then you have people who maybe don't have that type of power and influence that, that go about it a different way. And, and and we're seeing more and more the rise of sex predators in our culture, right? Men who who seek out individuals through the internet, younger individuals through the internet and take them for their desire and pleasure. Not not wicked people that have just gotten out of jail, right? Like you you may have seen some of these TV shows that 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 go behind the scenes and and reflect on what type of men we're talking about. We're talking about teachers and principals and policemen, soldiers that come home. Men of influence in our culture, men that we would hold up as heroes that are falling prey to this. Falling prey to to a mindset that goes all the way back to the beginning. Men looking and seeing and determining attractiveness and and taking for themselves. But part of the other reason that I've felt less compelled to fight some of these bigger issues is because I believe at, at times our church is part of the issue. Part of the issue. And I know I'll step on some toes at this point, but... But I believe it's important for us to communicate this because I don't know every individual situation. But I know, I know that pornography is only a few steps short of what we're talking about here. Because it is individuals who are taking whoever they choose for their pleasure. Now, they may not have the opportunity to do it physically. They may not have the money and power and influence to do it physically It may be the Holy Spirit that is constraining them from going that far, or it may just simply be the opportunity hasn't presented itself to go that far. So irregardless if these are the identities of the sons of God and daughters of men, it is important, especially for our men to wrap our minds around the mindset that would lead to this type of thing and to recognize that that we are not that far away from it. And there's really no man that's immune from it in here, even if it's not a struggle for you right now. I, I have put measures in place in my life because I don't trust myself. I don't trust myself. I know I'm sealed with the Holy Spirit, but I know I battle the flesh. And I also know that my dad left my mom, right? A man who, who was a pastor, who went to seminary, who has a doctorate degree, who one day woke up and decided that he was he was finished. He was He was bored. He wanted something different and began to be led by the flesh instead of spiritual discernment. Right? So so Tyson texted me the other day and he says, "Man, I have a hard time reading some of the books that your dad has has given you that you've passed down to me because when I go to highlight this stuff, it's already highlighted." Right? Like not the cliché stuff in the book, but the deep stuff in the book that that the spirit would reveal to you and say, "Man, that's good. That needs to be known." And Tyson says it's already highlighted by your dad. Your dad that left your mom, that left your family, that walked away from everything. And so I know that that me based on my family history Based on my own flesh, I'm not any better than anybody else in this room. Wherever you're at in that struggle, I'm no better. And, and, and at times, maybe it's because the opportunity hasn't presented itself more so than the Holy Spirit in my life. But I have, I have put provision in my life to make sure that I stay guarded and protected from this mindset. What was happening here was wicked and evil, and it's happening in our culture today, and it's still just as wicked and evil. Any concept, any mindset... where a a man is taking a woman for his own desire and pleasure. It's moved away from the woman being a gift from God to it being an object of pleasure, and that's never what God intended for marriage to be. It's never what God intended for marriage to be. The way these women were acquired was was evil and wrong. It was sinful. But secondly, the second perspective focuses on the type of women acquired. The type of women acquired. This view would hold that this is the godly line of Seth seeking out the ungodly women from Cain. This view would hold that based on our previous discussion that we've seen the descendants of Cain and how they went astray. And we've seen the descendants of Seth and how they were the first to begin to really call upon the name of the Lord and organize around public worship. So we've seen both of those lines separately Many would believe that as we come to chapter 6, we now see these two start to merge together once again. That there were some distinct qualities about the two, but now they're coming back together as one, and that it's evil and that it's wrong for the godly to be marrying with the ungodly. Essentially, we have what's being described here as the good boys marrying the bad girls. Every parent's nightmare, right? Uh, For those that have sons, that your son grows up and 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 finds physical attractiveness more important than godly character and they bring home a woman that that you're just thinking no no please no that that's what that's what some would say is is happening here that the godly boys are growing up and they're being enticed by the evil daughters of cain um probably a big hang-up for this is that you know you would say well does that really warrant a global flood for a couple of Christian choir boys to be to be wandering outside the church and marrying some girls that are a little rough around the edges. Maybe from our perspective, no, it wouldn't warrant a flood. But from what we see in Scripture, that God has always been very serious about his people staying separate from those that are not. We've always seen that both Old Testament and New Testament. It's very clearly defined in the Old Testament. There are passages in the New Testament that remind us that as we transition into the new covenant, But the standard is still in place that that the godly and the ungodly should not be mixing in this format, that we should not be unequally yoked, that 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 light and darkness don't have fellowship together. But it's definitely very clear in the Old Testament. Now, was it clear at this time in the Old Testament would be a question that I would raise. Can we really say this is godly boys marrying ungodly girls and it's a tragic sin if it hasn't been communicated yet? Right. They don't have the Old Testament law. They don't, they don't know some of the deeper understanding of right and wrong as far as how God will reveal it down the road. We're not sure if they would even know that this is a bad idea. But like I said, there are passages that highlight this for us in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 7, uh, verse 1 would be one passage. It says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, The Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. When the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. So, yeah, from our perspective, it's not a big deal maybe for Christians and non-Christians to marry. It definitely was a big deal to God. Even after the flood, he says, if this happens, I will destroy you. I will destroy you. Why? Is 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 it that big a deal to him if somebody is, is a worshiper of God and not a worshiper of him to come together and marry? Absolutely, because typically the normal pattern is that the one who doesn't worship God takes the one that does away from God, and so his glory decreases. His glory decreases, and that's ultimately what it's about here. It's not about, I don't want you to be happy with this person that you love. It's about his glory and his honor and the typical pattern. And the reason that he says this is wrong is because these girls will lead your boys away from worshiping me. You remember in the Old Testament as well, Balaam with the talking donkey, right? Like he is hired to prophesy against Israel, and he's not allowed to. God won't allow him to prophesy a curse against them. And so his backup plan, he tells the king of the Midianites, he says, just send your best, most uh, most seductive girls into their camp and lure the boys away to worship the way that you worship, and and their God will be angry with them. That's exactly how the story plays out, right? They send these girls in. The boys are enticed. They run away with these girls. They begin to worship falsely, and God's anger is kindled towards Israel because they've broken His law regarding regarding the sexual relationship between the ungodly and the godly. So it is a big deal. It is a big deal. Um, But can these individuals really be called godly? Right. We're talking about the the sons of God. Are they really the godly line of Seth if they end up being wiped out with the flood? Because Second Peter two five tells us that the flood destroyed the ungodly. So that's a concerning point here. Can we really call these people the godly line of Seth because they're certainly not acting godly? Also, a, a question that I would raise was the was the issue only the boys marrying the girls? What about the daughters of God marrying the sons of man? If you go back to the to the genealogies, the only time daughters are even mentioned is in the set is in the line of Seth. We don't have. Cain, now, it's not to say that Cain's descendants didn't have girls, right? They did. But even in the passage, it says nothing about them having daughters. It talks about the sons that they, that they produce. It's the line of Seth that has both the sons and daughters. Um, it's very possible that this is what's going on. This is the most naturalistic understanding about this passage, right? It, it avoids all the, the supernatural, the, the weird stuff coming into play. This is the most natural understanding of this passage, that you have the godly and the ungodly marrying, Ultimately, the line of the Messiah was in jeopardy, right? So that, that preservation of that line of Seth was in jeopardy as these start to come together and intermix and, and the worship of God is decreasing, ultimately to the point that by the time the flood comes, right, it's Noah and his family. It's like, I don't believe there, there's any reason to believe that somebody was a worshiper of God that perished in the flood. So we're talking about millions and billions of people and only a small family is still worshiping God of anybody on the earth. So, yeah, if these two are mixing together, it's having devastating effects because it really is playing out the way that you would think that it might, that the that the godly are being led astray by the ungodly. The parallel for us today is obviously um, that we do have believers that marry unbelievers, that that don't see the importance of that, um, and and that's a point of counsel that I've had with individuals that – uh, that I believe the New Testament teaches that for you to be thriving in your relationship with Christ, that it would be better to be single than to marry someone who's not a follower of Christ. Now it's not an unforgivable sin this has happened before and it's something that God can redeem uh, very much. Uh, but but the pattern here in Scripture is that we're to align ourselves with those that are going the same direction as us. Right? We we align ourselves with a church that we believe is going the same direction as us spiritually. We line ourselves with a husband or wife that we believe is going the same direction as us as well. And then the last legit theory about the identity of the sons of God and the daughters of man focuses on the offspring of the women acquired. This belief holds that these are fallen angels that cohabitate with earthly women and produce giant offspring. Fallen angels cohabitating with earthly women and producing giant offspring. Like I said, this sounds very sci-fi, very, um, very out of this world. This was a view that was accepted very early by the church fathers, um, renowned men who said this is this is what this passage is teaching. Um, it's also a view that was translated back into um, by the Septuagint. So the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Okay, so during that New Testament time, they are rewriting the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek so that the, the common language, people can read it. Uh, the Septuagint translate, the, translate this, translates this passage as angels of God. So it was a very early uh, circulated theory that what we're talking about here are fallen angels. Every other time that this, this uh, phrase, sons of God, is used in the Old Testament... It's used in the context of angels. In Job chapter 1, verse 6, you'll remember that Satan comes before God to begin the discussion about testing Job. It says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. This is a, a presentation of the angels before God. Um, if you skip ahead in the book of Job to, uh chapter 2, verse 1, again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. Uh, if you skip ahead even further to Job, chapter 38, verse 7. When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy, this is back at the the account of creation so this isn't this isn't man and woman because're they're, they're not in heaven yet so as god's creating he's already created the angels as he continues through creation uh, he highlights here the sons of God shouting for joy and understanding of angels here um, psalm twenty nine one psalm eighty nine seven or other passages that talk about the sons of God and relates it to angels. In Daniel 3.25, when uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in the, the fiery furnace, you'll remember Nebuchadnezzar looks in and says the fourth individual looks like one that is a son of the gods, uh, a supernatural understanding of sons of God there as well. The same phrase, same terminology. Um, so there's there's some textual support for this being angels versus being um, humans. The New Testament uh potentially alludes to some of this as well. In first Peter three nineteen. First Peter three nineteen uh, talking about Christ it says, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So talking about some spirits that are held in prison because of an element of disobedience, we get a better picture of who he may be talking about in Second Peter, uh, verse 2. For Verse four, for God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. So he talks about these angels uh, being committed to chains in hell, uh, gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. Uh, Right after that, he talks about the flood and the judgment that comes there. A very similar passage in Jude that I heard some groups talking about. Jude chapter 5 and 6 now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now, all these passages could simply be talking about the fallen angels that were kicked out of heaven, right? We know that Satan, when he was cast out, took demons with him, took angels that that became his his authority, that he rules over. Um, But there's the possibility here that we're talking about a category of those fallen angels, those that uh, went after unnatural desires by pursuing women, humankind, uh, to have sexual relations with. And that because of that offense because of that sin as God punishes the earth punishes man through the flood, that these angels have been set aside for their own type of punishment that they're not allowed to to roam the earth as Satan does now that, that they are actually been chained since this uh, since this time so we know that satan and 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 his demons await eternal punishment these passages may allude to that some are already enduring eternal punishment because of this act in Genesis chapter six now again these, these passages could simply be highlighting that God has, has, has bound and chained these demons and limited their authority, talking about all of them. What is interesting to note is that both Peter and Jude are quoting from the, from the book of 1 Enoch. Now, 1 Enoch is not a book in our canon of Scripture. It is not a uh, what we would consider an inspired piece of Scripture. But in the same way, I would quote from books. I quote commentaries. I quote individuals as I'm teaching you, the New Testament authors at times pull from other sources that are not the Old Testament to draw upon a point that they're making. Both Peter and Jude do that with 1 Enoch. If you read through the book of 1 Enoch, the book of 1 Enoch presents the case that these are fallen angels that came and had sex with women. Now, again, they're not necessarily quoting that portion of 1 Enoch, but I can tell you that I don't I can't say I've never done this, but I do not recall ever quoting from a book of somebody that I would have high disagreement with. right? So if I'm going to quote a book, it's typically going to be somebody that I align very closely with so that if you went and read a John Piper book or a John MacArthur book or, or a Francis Chan book, that that you would say, okay, my pastor probably feels pretty good about this guy. So they're quoting from a book, first, Enoch. More than likely, they considered it not inspirational, but potentially historical. And so that does lend some credence to this being uh, fallen angels that are talked about here in Genesis chapter 6. Um, but what about the passage that, that says that angels don't marry? Mark twelve twenty five. Jesus highlights this. He says, after the resurrection, you know, disciples are wondering, who are we going to be married to? If I had a wife and then she died and I got remarried, who's my wife? Well, well, in heaven we don't have marriages is what Jesus says. We're like the angels in heaven. And so that's typically used as a passage that would refute this. But you could argue that Jesus is talking about the angels in heaven. They don't marry. Um, the ones that aren't in heaven have married before um, is how you can easily work work both those passages together without any conflict. Um, we also know that when the angels go into the, the city of Sodom um, – to warn to warn Lot that the men of that city desire these angels, that there's sexual attraction there, at least on the human side. Now, we have no indication or, or reason to think that, that God's messengers would have reciprocated that type of interest. But we do know that angels present themselves in a way that is very human or at least very sexually attracted to those that are interested. Um, we see that mindset in Sodom and Gomorrah. When these angels come, these men want these Angels released to them, and the implication is that they want them released so that they can have uh, sexual relations with them. Uh, we also know that, that angels have come and eaten with Abraham in Genesis eighteen eight. that they're very human-like, that Abraham didn't know he was with angels, that they, they ingested food like a human. Um, we know that in uh, Hebrews 13, 2, it talks about us entertaining angels potentially, unaware of it. Um, so these aren't... Uh, these aren't physical beings that we would be uh, aware that they are supernatural. Um, we also know from Second Corinthians eleven fifteen that oftentimes uh, Satan and his forces uh, appear as angels of light; that they are uh, appearing as good people that we must be aware of. So there are implications in Scripture that angels present themselves in a form that is very normal and natural. To humankind and they expect them to perform normal humankind activities whether it's eating whether it's having sex that it's a an expectation that this would not be out of the realm for these people that we're talking to um there's also the concept here of this nephilim that's talked about here in genesis 6 and i told you that part of the reason people want to jump on board with the angel theory here is because of the offspring that seems to come from these marriages now, some would say the Nephilim are not offspring, that the Nephilim is a separate group of people that are just here on the earth. It says in verse four, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. As I read it, it seems to connect these individuals as coming from these marriages. Um, we know later on in Scripture that in Numbers 13.33, this is the other passage that was was talked about a little bit in some of the groups. Numbers 13.33, the spies come back. Uh, they've, they've been touring the, the land of Canaan. They come back and say, we can't conquer this land. There are giants living here. They are the descendants of the Nephilim. Um, Nephilim can mean fallen ones. Uh, going back to the Septuagint, it translates the word gigantus back into it as well. The concept of them being giants, being large men, uh, being men of renown. Um this concept also comes up in in conquering the land of Canaan with Deuteronomy 2:10 and Deuteronomy 3:11. We also know that David had to battle Goliath who was a man of of large stature. Um so there's precedent for for giants and and men of renown and men of of strength existing in other portions of um the Old Testament as well. I was telling one group that Obviously we know all these people die except for Noah and his family. So if we're talking about angels, we would assume that that the human line has been preserved and so none of Noah's family had relationship with this. So how would we get Nephilim and giants after the fact? These spies come back and tell a lot of lies about the land, right? We can't take it. It's too big. These people are too great. None of that's valid. Uh, I was telling this group over here, I doubt that they really had time to check to see if these were real descendants of these people. It's most likely a comparison. It's we've heard about these people before the flood. These guys are the next best thing, right like they're they're giants, and we know that there are men of, of large stature even today. Uh, it's considered a birth defect in some senses um that that the mutation of some of the genes we talked about this as as they start to continue to marry that there comes a point where you stop marrying your brother and your sister because the the mutation of the genes starts to incur. You may have had some that continued that process that would continue to produce potentially giants after the flood. So it's not really a problem there as far as how do we get giants after the flood if they all died in the flood. Um, what's appealing to me about this view, this ancient men of renown, is that this is perhaps the source of so much legend and mythology that we have in other cultures. right? So you study mythology, you study the Greeks and, and, and the belief systems that they have about Half God half men type individuals, uh, men that had special power and authority like we, we we still go back to that today, even when we talk about superheroes, men that are more than men, right that concept comes from something like that that concept has some type of origin somewhere, and it 's found in so many cultures these these men that were more than just men, and it may be that. Rather than, so because some skeptics would say, well, Christianity has taken legend and tried to write it in as factual history. Whereas it may be the other, that these legends have taken factual history and distorted it and created the, these legends and myths about godlike men um, that rule and reigned on this earth. Uh, so, so that would help explain some of what we see in other cultures, these godlike men that are talked about um, and discussed. I think this view best explains the the offspring that we're talking about here. Uh, I think it also explains the great need for this flood um, as I start to to examine this and look at this, um, it's very possible because I believe satan I believe Satan is very mindful that God is bringing the Messiah to crush his head. I believe Satan never forgot that, right? We forget it. We forget that Jesus is coming back every day, it seems like. We come together on Sundays to remind ourselves that Jesus is coming back. Otherwise, we get so consumed with the world and our flesh that we would forget. I believe Satan never forgets. And I believe Satan has been working since the day that that happened in the garden to avoid this. And it's very possible that because of the fact that angels are not provided salvation, that Satan's mindset was, I'm going to create an offspring. I'm going to create a seed that cannot be saved. I'm going to wipe out this line of Seth, I'm going to wipe out God's plans by creating a people group that cannot be saved, that God's grace does not extend to. Um, you could see even some potential parallels into this today. And I don't want to get too, what are you talking about? But the Bible says that it'll be like the days of Noah when Jesus comes back. And we are starting to dabble in the aspects of creating life. You know, the, the concept of cloning. And I'll admit right now, I do not understand cloning, so I, I am speculating at best. But for us to move in a direction where potentially this becomes possible for life to be created, uh, absent from from what we know as the normal means, uh, is there any similarities there? I don't know. Uh, but, but it's possible that that's a parallel that we could see come back. Perhaps, if these are fallen angels, that we see that come back as well um and so it's not as otherworldly as it may first seem because there is textual evidence for this there is the possibility of this uh but i think what's important for us because i told you at the beginning i really don't think it matters Uh, at the end of the day when we walk out of here i don't think it matters if it's fallen angels or if it's crazy rulers that just want women for themselves there's things that we take away from this passage regardless of their identities and that's where i want to share with you in this next part of the notes identity of the gross sin What the main point of this passage, whoever these people are, there is sexual perversion happening here. Sexual perversion is the key. Rather than viewing the opposite sex as a gift, women had become an object to satisfy desires. And whether this is specifically being discussed here, I can guarantee you at this time, men were acquiring women. Based on their desirability and personal lust. They were being driven by their lust rather than their spiritual discernment. They took whichever woman they wanted and they took however many they wanted. The language here parallels so well with with what happens in, in Genesis 3 with Eve. It says the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. It's The same thing that Eve did. It says that when she saw that the fruit was attractive, she took it and she ate it. This is essentially what sin is. Sin is us evaluating things, seeing things and evaluating things, and determining that things are good based on our own standards rather than comparing them to God's word. And then we take it for ourselves. We take it for ourselves. And and not even not moving away from even the sexual factor. Taking something as simple as gossip, right? Gossip is me determining that the affirmation of others is good. That people liking me is good, even at the cost of them disliking others. And so I will share things about others to make others look bad so that I look good. I determined that that is a good way for me to get self-affirmation. And I take it and I seize it, even though it's contrary to God's word, that I'm to put others above my own needs. So we don't have to stay in the realm of sex for this to be relevant for us. This is this is how all sin works. We see something, we determine that it's good, and we take it. But it obviously has sexual connotations here as well, because this is what's so tragic about our culture today. Even those that aren't engrossed in in sexual sins that we talked about earlier. It's still a mindset within our marriages, right? It's a mindset in our marriages. What's lead, what's lead, it, it is what leads men to be unfaithful in their marriages. When they wake up one day and decide that what they see is no longer good, and so they go take something else. And i and I shared with this before. Like, my commitment to Lauren is not based on her remaining good in my sight. It's not based on that. And we talk about the fact that, yes, I made a commitment to her on our marriage day. But even bigger than that, in the marriages that I performed, I made a commitment to God, made a commitment to God that I was going to be faithful to Lauren, whether she remained good in my sight or not. And I know that sounds very unromantic for me to say that I am with her regardless. But it should be such a freeing thing for all of our wives, men, for them to know that we are in this for the long haul regardless of their desirability to us, because the commitment was made to God that I'm going to stay faithful and that I'm not going to go seize and take something else when it becomes more desirable potentially to me. That what's good is what God has promised and that he's not withholding good from me. And so I remain in my marriage because God has said that that my marriage is good for me. And what we have here are men and, and and men that at least men, maybe more than men, looking looking attractively at women and saying, That's what I want, that's what's good for me. And taking it and seizing it. And it was wrong and it was sinful. So the summary for this section is that the flood flows in response to man's sexual perversion. The flood flows in response to man's sexual perversion. What we have going on here is another attempt by Satan to attack the seed of Eve. Even if it's not angels and him trying to produce some crazy super race of half angel, half man person that can't be saved. It's at least, it's at least Satan trying to pervert the line of godly men and ungodly women coming together and producing children that do not know God. And Satan's plan is to distort and to dilute the seed of Eve in hopes that there never comes one to crush his head. And he's always in this business, right? He's always in this business. In Egypt, when when Satan identifies that God has called Abraham out and Abraham's descendants is where the Messiah is going to come from, what's his plan? He tells Pharaoh, kill every male boy. Kill every male boy. Why? Because I've got to cut off this line. It's now been determined that the Messiah is coming through Abraham. Kill them all. When it's determined that it's coming from David, Absalom comes after David and tries to kill him. When it's determined that it's coming from Judah... When the, when the tribes split, the ten tribes come after the tribe of Judah. Let's extinguish the tribe of Judah. If the Messiah comes from Judah, Satan turns his attention to Judah. When there's rumors that the king has been born with Herod, Herod comes after the boys once again. Let's kill everything that would leave a possibility of the Messiah coming. And so what we have here, once again, Genesis 6, Satan trying to dilute the seed of Eve. He doesn't forget about the promised Redeemer coming. He fights back against the notion of his head being crushed. In that term, we can see that the flood is a rescue mission by God as much as it is an act of judgment. The flood can be viewed as a rescue mission by God to preserve the salvation of man through Christ. Right? So we typically see it as God judging man, but he's also saving man because what's happening here is Satan is trying to destroy the gospel. Satan is trying to destroy the gospel through sexual perversion, and God steps in and says, I'm not going to let that happen. I'm not going to let that happen. I'm going to stop this. I'm going to put a halt to this. The gospel will proceed. The Messiah will come. It's a rescue mission my God. I think it's also important to note as we kind of leave this section that responsibility is placed on man for the sins of this chapter, not angels. So even if we are entertaining the idea that maybe this is fallen angels, the responsibility for the sin here is placed on man. The flood is placed on man. The judgment comes upon man for his actions. But it's not just this sexual perversion that we see here. There's also the the global depravity of man it says in verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was on evil continually. Man is only capable of evil according to this passage. It's an internal problem. His intents of his heart are, are evil and they're continuous. Right? Jeremiah 17.9 tells us that our heart is, is deceitful and it's desperately wicked. That we have to be reborn, we have to be renewed, that we can't trust our inward desires. They'll lead us astray, right? I can't just trust that I'll stay faithful to my wife because my my flesh will lead me astray. That's why I go on Wednesday nights to, to meet with other men in our church so they can hold me accountable to the commitment, not just that I've made to Lauren, but that I've made to God. And that I can confess when I'm starting to wander and stray if that ever happens, that I've got people there that can hold me accountable. So, yeah, it would be important for me to stay at home on a Wednesday night and be with Lauren and the kids. But I want my kids and Lauren to know that when I leave, when I leave to go meet with men for accountability, it's for their protection long term. Yeah, it'd be nice to play tonight, but I want to be playing 30 years from now. I want to be playing 30 years from now with my grandkids because I stayed faithful. Right. So so I give up one night to ensure that there are many more nights for me to be hanging with my family because I don't trust myself. I don't trust my heart. I don't trust my flesh. Till Jesus comes back, I'll be fighting against my sinful desires. And if I'm going to make war with sin, I take every effort to make sure that I keep my body under control so that I don't forfeit myself and forfeit my ministry, forfeit my family. We also see that violence reigns during this time. And so while it's not highlighted in our passage today, down in verse... um, 11 now the earth was corrupt in god's sight the earth was filled with violence and god saw the earth and behold it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth so not only is sexual perversion a problem violence is a problem god says i'm going to wipe everything out the lord regretted that he had made man on the earth it grieved him to his heart so the lord said i will blot out man whom i've created from the face of the land man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens for i'm sorry i've made them the flood will extend as far as life has extended now we'll talk Potentially at some point during this, whether the, glo- the flood was a global flood or was it a localized flood. What I do believe is certain is that it extended as far as life extended, that, that, that nobody escaped the flood. Um, so it may have, you know, we'll see. Is there evidence that it was confined to a certain area of the earth or did it encompass the entire globe as we know it? What we do, what we do know, and what I do believe scripture presents is that it wiped out all of life. So the flood is certainly extended as far as life extended. And then lastly here, we see the holy mindset of God in this passage. We we see the sin of man. We see the sexual perversion, the violence, the, the intent of evil. But we also see the holy mindset of God. First of all, we see that the sin of man leads God to sorrow. It leads God to sorrow. It says the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Every intent of his heart was evil. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. We know that God is fully aware of the situation here. He doesn't just bring a flood as a quick reaction. He doesn't get to a point where he just can't tolerate it on a certain day. He's fully aware of the evil. He's fully aware of the intent. He's fully aware that at this point, mankind had lost all hope. And then in order to preserve the gospel and to preserve the Messiah and the plans for the Messiah, that the flood was necessary. And yet, even in the midst of his sovereignty and his control we see a, as best we understand, a, uh, a a human element that we understand when we look at the emotion of God here. And, and we see that he's not just a static God who, who is letting things play out and doing things his way as though he's not connected to it. We see a God who's very much a part of this situation, a God who is very grieved over this situation. His, his delay of judgment, his uh, his long suffering is not just a a thing that he throws in there because it looks good. It's it's a it's a coming out here for God. It's it's he's connected to his creation and, and this is something that he doesn't he doesn't find pleasure in. And we know that he gets glory from this. We know that he he gets that, and so it brings pleasure. But he doesn't he doesn't glory in destroying his creation here. And and he's torn over it. He's broken over it. The Bible tells us that he's uh, he's wrestling with with what's going on here. Um, God has a tolerance level for the amount of wickedness he will permit. He says that uh, mankind's days are numbered. Some would say that this 120 years that's highlighted here means that nobody beyond that point would live older than 120, which is just not true because we see that uh, even after the flood, men continue to live longer than this. And so most would say that this is actually a, an indication of when the flood would come, that man would have another 120 years to repent uh, before judgment would come. we see God's sorrow and grief highlighted here it doesn't mean that that God made a mistake it doesn't mean that that he wished he had done things differently it's it's more an idea here that he's grieved over the very good becoming very bad he's grieved over it Um, even as he even as it plays out the way that he knew it was going to play out right because we said before Genesis before we studied Genesis that the plan was for the Messiah to come and to be slaughtered for the sins of man so it's playing out just as he knew it would play out but but in the in the time frame here, in, in the point in time here, it's grieving to him. It's grieving to him to see man turn to sin time and time again. And then next here, the glory of God provides grace for man. God always responds to sin with gracious judgment. God will not allow the wickedness of man to destroy the good of his creation. What we see here is that God describes kind of an, an uncreation of things. He says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take man and animals and creeping things and birds in the heavens. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to retract that, basically. So in the same way it had flowed for him, the birds and the creeping things and the animals and then man, he, he retracts and says, I'm going to take these things off the earth. I'm going to resubmerge the, the dry land under the water. And the picture is, after the flood, that God recreates in a sense. As the waters recede, the, the dry land comes back. The animals and the birds and mankind come off the ark. It's a reset. And we'll see that it doesn't take long for it to go wrong again. But God is very grieved over his creation, going from very good to very bad. Noah is shown grace by God here. And this is, this is where we'll stop and let it lead us into next week. It says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The better translation is really that Noah was shown grace in the eyes of the lord it's not that god looked out and said okay who's the best man available who's the one with the best good works it's not that case it's, it's that god looked out and, and demonstrated grace and showed grace to noah gives him the opportunity for faith gives him the opportunity to respond in faith so even as judgment comes just like in the garden just as we saw in the garden god extends grace two points of application and we'll be finished two points of application I think this has bearing for us as we move forward into this week. Um, Not only is Satan a liar, he is a killer, and he wants you dead. Not only is Satan a liar, he is a killer, and he wants you dead. Irregardless of the identity of these people, what we should walk away from this is that Satan is wanting to destroy God's creation He wants to wipe out the seed of Eve, whether he's using godly men and women and and ungodly men and women coming together, whether he's using fallen angels, whether he's using rulers that, that are taking women for themselves. He wants to destroy the line of Eve because he wants to destroy the Messiah. He wants to destroy us. And so as we wrestle this week with temptation and we try to determine what's good and what's not good, it needs to be at the forefront of our attention that one wants us dead and one wants to give us eternal life. It's really what it boils down to. So when I wake up in the morning and I look, to, I look over at my wife, it's not a decision for me as to, should I stay faithful to my wife or should I look elsewhere? It's God has promised good things to me with this woman and my family for the rest of my life. And the other leads to death. And at that point, when you wake up in the morning, you say, it's really not a decision to make at this point. One leads to life, one leads to death, but we muddy the waters because we don't keep that at the forefront. We try to make it more complicated than it really is because we don't keep that at the forefront. If we walked out our door every day praying that as we face temptation that God would remind us that one leads to death, one leads to life. we'd be far more faithful and effective in our walks. He's a liar, and he wants us dead. ephesians six: twelve encourages us to flee to the one that's already defeated the that has already defeated Satan. It's also a reminder to us that when we yield our bodies to sin, we are actively participating in Satan's destructive plans. Whoever was involved here, they were yielding themselves to sexual perversion, which was ultimately part of Satan's plan to kill people. So when we wake up in the morning, we yield our bodies to righteousness and not to sin. Because when we yield our bodies to sin, it's not just something between you and God. You are yielding your body as a weapon to the enemy for his destructive purposes. And then lastly, marriage is a gift from God. Marriage is a gift from God. It's not to be viewed as take what you want. My encouragement to our married men, to our, to our single men is the same. Is that God gifts women to us. It was a gift in the garden when he created woman to complete man. And she remains a gift to us. And for those that have yet to marry, the gift remains for you. And you're to pursue that. And we're to avoid this type of mentality where in in, in some evil way we think that we have a right to take what we want and to discard when we don't want it. The calling here is for us to, to preserve marriage because marriage was ordained by God in the very beginning. And what we see here is a complete breakdown of that. A breakdown that ultimately leads to a flood. Sexual perversion that God says, I cannot tolerate it because ultimately the gospel has to go forth. And this is a perversion of the gospel and it muddies the waters of the gospel. So as men in our church, we pursue faithfulness to keep the gospel at the forefront of our church as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage. I praise you and thank you for, the truth that's contained here. And God, while it's while it may be fun to to wrestle with the identities of, of these individuals and, and what was happening, um we ultimately look to the bigger picture and know that that there are important things that we need to walk away from this passage with. God, I pray that it would ring true in our ears, that Satan is destructive that he desires to wreak havoc upon your creation. God, help us to align ourselves with your purposes this week. As we face temptation, help us to see the way of escape from temptation. God, help us to realize that the choice comes down to life and death and not preference. God, help us to hear through the lies of, of sin being good that ultimately you have extended the best to us. And, Father, I pray that we would seize that. Help us to see that in calling us to be separated from this world, it is a privilege that you have called us to be your sons and daughters. Father, I pray that that as we fight this week, that we would keep at the forefront of our minds that Jesus is coming back. Father, I pray that that would motivate us every single day to live faithfully for you. Father, I pray that in this area that we've discussed this morning, that in the area of of our sexual relationships, that you would keep our church pure. Father, purify us so that we can effectively fight against the perversion in our area. Father, help us not to contribute to the problem as a church. Father, I pray that you would guard and protect our marriages. Father, I pray that you would start with the men in our church by allowing them to be the spiritual husbands and fathers that we need them to be. That they would lead their wives and their children to the throne of grace. God, that they would be the spiritual priests of their homes. Father, I pray for our single men that you would raise them up to be those godly men that you desire to give families to. That they would begin now to live in that that way. They would be faithful now. So that they can be faithful then. Father, I pray that you would... Guard us and protect us this week until we come again together to to gather for fellowship and for encouragement. Help us to be more mindful of Jesus' return this week than Satan is. Help us to work for those purposes. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.